we have lots of things that are really, really helpful for people. And programs are important, but we're not about programs. Uh, we're about people. Programs don't feel joy or sadness, uh, but people do. And programs don't come from bro- broken homes, and they don't have hopes and dreams, and Jesus didn't die for programs. But Jesus is about people, and REF is about Jesus, and so we're about people too. So if you're a person here today, um, which I assume most of y'all are, except for that dog back there in the back, <laughs> um, we're about you, and we're for you, um, because Jesus is for you. So I just want to say that here as we get started. Um, so Katie and I, before we moved here, we lived in St. Louis for five years, and part of what we were doing there for that time was I was going to seminary, and there weren't a lot of classes that Katie and I took together in seminary, we only took a couple, uh, most of them she wasn't very interested in, like Hebrew or Greek, but, um, one we did take together, though, was taught by this old British guy, like, imagine in your mind, like, the quintessential British granddad that you would just, like, Sit next to him in a chair, and before you went to bed, you've got like a warm glass of milk, and he's reading you bedtime stories. Like, it's that guy. Um, he's got this super soft, gentle voice. Uh, it was just amazing. And he was totally, totally, totally into uh, Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. And we were taking a children's lit class, and so he spent a lot of time on that. Uh, and I kid you not, like, if this guy had taken off his shirt and showed me like a sleeve tattoo of Middle Earth, I wouldn't have been that surprised. <laughs> he was really into this stuff. Um, but we spent a long time on Lord of the Rings. And he kind of walked us through it and showed us points of contact between it and a Christian worldview. And one of those points comes in the second book of the trilogy, The Two Towers. And it comes where Sam and Frodo are kind of off by themselves. And they're going through this part of the country that's just been ransacked by orcs. These really bad like kind of troll things. And they come across this place... And and Tolkien writes this. He says, The brief glow of the sun fell upon a huge sitting figure, still and solemn as the great stone kings of old. The years had gnawed it, violent hands had maimed it, its head was gone, and in its place was set in mockery a rough, hewn stone, rudely painted by savage hands in the likeness of a grinning face, with one large red eye in the midst of its forehead. Upon its knees and mighty chair and all about the pedestal were idle scrawls mixed with the foul symbols of the maggot folk of Mordor. Suddenly, caught by the level beams of the sun, Frodo saw the old king's head. It was lying, rolled away by the roadside. Look, Sandy cried, startled into speech. Look, the king has got a crown again. The eyes were hollow, the carven beard was broken, but about the high, stern forehead there was a coronal of silver and gold. A trailing plant with flowers like small white stars had bound itself across its brow, as if in reverence for the fallen king. And the crevices of his stony hair, yellow stone crop gleamed. They cannot conquer forever, said Frodo. And suddenly, the brief glimpse was gone. We talked about this, because this is very close to a biblical view of people. That every human being is made in this image of a king, or a queen, incapable of incredible courage, incredibly noble acts of great feats of civilization and knowledge, and yet we're broken too, fallen in. The image is smeared. Uh, There was a science fiction writer who lived about uh, 30 or 40 years ago, a man named Isaac Asimov, and back in the day in the 60s, he wrote this article where he predicted that 
one day in the far future, 2013, uh, we would have like robot butlers and flying cars and like moon colonies, and that everyone, which would be pretty sweet, but everyone uh, would have so much leisure time because of technology that people would just be able to sit around and read Plato and Aristotle and roll up their sleeves now that work was out of the way and just get after the big problems of like social justice and evil in the world. And I read this article because this guy was looking back on what Isaac Asimov had written and said, you know, like, here we are, and we certainly don't have robot butlers. We're this close. Um, but we do have a lot more free time. And what do we do with it? Look at BuzzFeed articles, spend a lot of time on Facebook, uh, eat Doritos and hang out on the couch, binge on Netflix. Um, that we have all these things and we don't tackle these big problems. Not always. The queen has lost her crown. The king's head is broken. You see, we can search and search to try to figure out what does it mean for me to be a person? What do I do with both these things, this dignity and also this brokenness in my life? And how can it be put back together as a person? But unless we take our cues from the one who made people, we'll always miss the mark. So I want to ask three questions tonight. What does it mean to be made in God's image? What do I do with that image? And how has Christ redeemed it? What does it mean to be made in God's image? What do I do with that image? And how has Christ redeemed it? So let me read Psalm 8. We'll get started here. O Lord, our Lord... How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. you put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our, our Lord, how majestic is your name on all the earth. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. O oh, great God, how majestic you are. How wonderful you are that you would make this world and make these people. And Lord, you would not only make them, but you would redeem them. Lord, I pray that tonight you would, uh, Father, help us to see how you've redeemed us through your Son, Jesus. And Lord, may the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So, what does it mean to bear God's image? What does that mean? This psalm is King David reflecting on the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, where it shows what's the ideal unfallen state of people. And there God says, let us make man in our image. Let us make man male and female. And so he created them in his image. That David is looking back on that and saying, God, we're made in your image. This is incredible. And from the very beginning, that image-bearing means that it's not just one person by themselves, but it's multiple people together, a family or a community in some way. Um, and it, So why is this important? Why is this important here? Think about human rights. 
Think about human rights. We're super concerned about this on this campus, and rightfully so in a lot of ways. Because almost anyone would agree that the problem of human suffering is bad, right? But why is it bad? If people are no more complicated, or no more than a very complicated bag of chemical reactions, then why is human suffering bad? If you remove the idea that people have an intrinsic worth that extends beyond the human world, you may not like suffering, but could you say that objectively it was bad? I don't think so. You need something above humanity to say that human suffering has worth or value apart from just the things that we assign to it. Why is that? Because what if, like a tidal wave, wiped out your village but made way for my condo development? You lost, I gained. You suffered, I didn't. Without an objective standard of human worth and dignity, everything becomes totally subjective. And the people with the power become the ones who get to say what suffering counts and whose suffering counts or whose doesn't. Or who gets full dignity as a person or who only gets partial dignity of a person. Like where does the idea that everyone is created equal come from? It comes from this part of the Bible, right? That people are made in the image of God and you can't take that away. Thomas Jefferson understood that. That's why the Declaration of Independence says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. And that they're endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights. Among those, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Image-bearing and not power dynamics are what give people true value and dignity. Power can be taken away. People can be abused. They can be trampled on. They can debase themselves in all kinds of ways. But they still have value and dignity. Why is that? Because image-bearing can't be taken away. If God was obsessed with the idea of power, like we sometimes are, then He would have made the angels, who are much stronger, much wiser, much more powerful than we are, the ones who bear His image. But that's not what He did, is it? Think about this. The angels are spirit. Animals, like Eno right there in the back, are matter. But people are different than either one of those. You are an embodied spirit. You're both soul and body. So your body and what you do with it matters. And your soul and what happens with it matters. The glory and honor that God intended you to have was that you'd be like this intersection between spirit and matter, heaven and earth, and that through humankind, God's character and His glory would shine in the material world. God's image is stamped on you. Like the face of George Washington on a coin. Like George Washington's face makes a quarter a quarter. It's what gives it its value, right? If you took that face away, a quarter would just be a flat piece of metal. God's image stamped onto you, onto your whole person as this intrinsic part of who you are, gives you ultimate value and ultimate worth. So whether you're a Christian or not, you're made in the image of God. So what do you do with that? Take a step back here and look at what David is doing. He's looking up at the night sky and he's saying, I'm looking at the moon and the stars, the work of your fingers, God, and I'm blown away. Have you ever had that experience where you're out camping and you're hanging out with friends and you, know, you look up at just the crystal clear night? And you see stars like jewels in the sky. And you think about how far away those things are. And how vast those things are. So even the biggest things on earth, mountains and oceans, are just insignificant 
compared to stars and the space between stars. David is having a similar experience here, and he's saying, God, I'm blown away by your work. And it's not that you're so remote, it's that you're so detailed. It's that you're king over earth and heaven, and then he looks at people and he says, you've made us in your image. And you've given us dominion over the works of your hands. you put all these things under our feet. And David's point is this, that you're made in God's image so that the character of a God who is spirit, who both creates and rules, will be shown in the material world. Do you love nature? Do you love the mountains? Do you love the stars and the deep dark woods? Are you an animal person? Do you get sad when you read about another species going extinct? Or are you someone who is just totally fascinated by the way that blood pumps through the circulatory system? Or the way your cochlea works in your ear? Do you like to write or draw or sculpt? Or does the idea of just getting people together and raising capital and going out and starting something or making something excite you? Of course those things excite you. Because you're made to both create and to rule. And I don't know exactly what that means for each one of you. Everybody has their own unique gifts and personality and calling. But let me suggest this. Be a good student here with your studies. Because this is what God has called you to right now. And not everybody here knows exactly why they're here or what they're going to study or why they're getting the degree that they're getting. Some of us are just getting a degree to move on and do something else. Uh, But if you're sure that you want to be a nurse, then be a really good nurse. Because you'll be ruling just a teeny part of creation one day in such a way that sickness and death are going to have to fight you tooth and claw to get a handhold in your ward of the hospital. Or if you're a history or a poli-sci major, then learn and organize knowledge in such a way that one day you could help create really amazing social institutions or fight for the side of justice in the world. Or many of you will one day be a mom or a dad, and trust me, that is creating and that is ruling. (laughs) So, I know a little bit of that. So start preparing for that now by caring for the helpless and the weak and the dependent people in your life. Not the people who are far away in some other part of the world, but the people right here at Carolina that you know, that you can care for. Because one day, those people, or people like them, are going to be your kids. So think about that. Alright, is this just a sermon where I tell you that you need to believe in God and be nice and work hard? If it is, I've helped no one. How has Christ redeemed our image? How has Christ redeemed our image? In this psalm, David's talking about the ideal, the unfallen state of human existence. He's saying, God, this is how you made us to be. And yet, there's natural disasters. And there's wars, and there's famine, there's every kind of human suffering and frustration. And David is saying, this is how it's supposed to be. And yet our experience of the world is that it's not. It's not like this. Okay, go back to Tolkien. He uh, had a day job when he wasn't writing Lord of the Rings. He also um, was a linguist. He was a professor. Uh, he had a lot of brains upstairs. And he once wrote an essay called On Fairy Stories, um, where he ties in kind of his love of the Lord of the Rings with his love of language and history. And he tries to understand, okay, what is the appeal of like fantastic or supernatural literature? Like, why, 
why do we like Harry Potter? Why do we like Guardians of the Galaxy? Why do we like Lord of the Rings so much? And he said the reason why was that we're fascinated by stories in which people step out of time and they escape from the power of death or they have love without parting or they communicate with non-human beings and where good finally triumphs over evil. And that any story that depicts those things, we just cannot get enough of it. And your English teacher will tell you, you need to go read For Whom the Bell Tolls, and your heart says, no, give me Dumbledore, right? Like, <laughs> you feel that. <laughs> we desperately won't want it. We need these stories to keep going. Why? Well, atheists have their explanation, but Tolkien concludes something totally different. He says that everyone knows on some level that those are the kinds of stories that we were made to inhabit. That we have these stories over here, and yet we feel this disconnect over here. And he essentially ends by saying, if Jesus Christ is really the person the Bible makes him out to be, then through faith in him, you will literally experience the things that our hearts long for. Because think about this. Christianity is a history. It tells a story that that it says really happened in the world with real places and real people and real events. It's realistic. But it answers our deepest longings for a story where we get the things that seem the most far away and yet we long for. And if you're a Christian, do you realize you get those things? That one day you will step out of time into eternity and you will escape from the power of death and you will have love without parting with people that you care deeply about, and you'll communicate with non-human beings, and you'll finally see good triumphing over evil in such a way that evil can never return to this world, and oppression and injustice are done away with forever. And if you're here, and you're not, you know you're not a Christian, then stay and at least check this stuff out thoroughly. Because the deepest longings of your heart might be met. We long for the things that Tolkien has talked about because the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And this is where Christ steps in. The New Testament book of Hebrews says that Jesus, after making purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He creates any rules. He makes purification and he sits down next to God. He does big things that only God can do, but then it goes on and quotes this psalm and says, okay, he's big, but he's a man. And he's not just any man, but he's the ideal man. You see, we're supposed to be the bridge between spirit and earth. We have a soul and yet we're, we have a body. And that bridge is broken and we feel that brokenness in ourselves. We're supposed to create and rule in a way that resembles God's creation and His rule. But instead we're ruled by our own creations. We idolize work and money and pleasure. And then we feel lost and hopeless. We go hiking and we want to feel connected to nature and safe in it. But we're not connected. If nature could eat us, it would eat us. Trust me. Like, I would live ten minutes in the woods and die. Like, I'm not a nature guy. The world is not as it's supposed to be. And we know it. We feel it. That's why you're so passionate about all the social injustice and all the clubs to get organized in because you feel it so deeply. You haven't numbed your heart to it yet. 
that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And you long for it to be better. And what everyone in the New Testament is excited about is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God made visible. That if you've seen me, then you have seen the Father. And Hebrews 1 quotes this psalm to show us that God has become a human being in order that people would become the way that they were meant to be. Look, Jesus dies saying, it is finished. He speaks and it has power because He's God and yet He dies on a cross in your place because He's man. He has all His power and He gives it up. God is reconciled to His people when it is finished. And history will not end in violence or oppression but in hope and in light and a new beginning because it is finished. And the image of God, no matter how stained or broken, and you will be restored. So that one day you will feel as clean as you are in Christ. Because it is finished. A little peasant man who died 2,000 years ago and was oppressed and crushed and crucified and said it is finished was both man and God. And if he says it's true, it's true. I'll end with this. I don't know if you saw this news, but over the break, former Tar Heel and longtime commentator on ESPN, uh, Stuart Scott, lost his battle with cancer. And by all accounts, it was a real battle. I don't know how much you know about chemotherapy, but they essentially like pump the right dosage of poisonous chemicals into you to try and kill the cancer, but not kill you. It makes you incredibly ill. Your hair falls out. You feel weak as a kitten. You're vomiting. There are people who have chosen to die of cancer rather than take chemotherapy. Do you know what Stuart Scott did while he was taking uh, chemotherapy and fighting the cancer that would ultimately take his life? On chemo days, uh, when everyone else tells you you feel the absolute worst, he would go to the gym and he would take a mixed martial arts class while battling the cancer that would take his life. And someone asked him, you know, why are you doing this? You have cancer. You shouldn't go to the gym. What was his reply? He said, I can take this. So I think for the ones who can't punch a heavy bag, who can't spar, who can't do any of that, I'll do it for you. Jesus takes on our sickness. He takes on our brokenness. When he could have been invulnerable to our pain and our suffering and our oppression, he is oppressed for us. When you couldn't do it for yourself, he did it for you. He took on the worst things right on the face so that you would be made whole, so that you would be redeemed. And we can't make ourselves right with God. We can't heal ourselves. We can't create without being ruled by our creations. We can't rule without regret. So Jesus does those things for us because He loves us, because He brings us back to God. So let's stand and sing and worship Him now. Let me pray first. Father, thank You for Your Son, for His work in our lives. Thank You that You love us and You're kind to us. Lord, thank You that the story that we're in is not one where evil wins. 
and not one where darkness triumphs, and not one um, where the king or the queen forever loses their crown, but, Lord, one where we're restored and where light wins, and, Lord, where good triumphs over evil. God, uh, would you be our hope in that? Would you help us as we walk through life in that? God, would you help us to love one another and encourage one another with that? In your sense, we pray. Amen.